What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Uncensored Critic Podcast. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. I really appreciate it. And today, it gives me great pleasure to welcome along one of the best directors in the British theatre scene at the moment, and that is Mr. Justin Martin, a man with incredible amount of credits to his name. So I'll just read out a few of the amazing work that this man has done. For film, he has directed on The Beautiful Game with Thea Sharrock. In development is something called The Jungle, for which he will be the prime director. And together, that was nominated for the best single drama at the BAFTAs, and that cast included James McAvoy and Sharon Horgan. For TV, he has worked on The Crown, series one and two, The Lovers with Sky Atlantic. And for theater, uh, this is just a small sample of the work he's done for the theater. He's worked on Billy Elliot, The Audience with Helen Mirren, Skylight with Kerry Mulligan and Bill Nye, The Delivery, The Inheritance, The Jungle, and of course, Primer Facey, which he which was directed at the Harold Pinter Theatre and in the Golden Theatre, uh, John Golden Theatre, sorry, in New York. And it's a genuine pleasure to have you along today, sir. Justin, how are you? Very good. Pleasure to be here. Nice to uh, meet you. And you, man. Thank you. I've been a huge admirer of your work for, for ages. I saw Skylight just before Christmas, the theatre broadcast. What an amazing show to, to be a part of. What was that experience like for you? Feels like such a long time ago now. Um, it was good. It was a. It was a. Uh, it was great. It was a boxing match of two different acting styles, mm. and um, both Kerry and Bill were at the t- are at the top of their game um, still, but were brilliant and amazing and the most lovely people to work with. And yeah, it's just it's just one of those beautiful plays. It hasn't been done. It hasn't been done since. So it'd be interesting to to see if someone will take it on board again and do it. Mm. It's definitely one from the bucket list for me. Obviously, a bit, a bit, few more years down the line, but as an actor, I'd love to tackle that role. And it's an amazing thing that Bill Nye does. A lot of inspiration taken from him. So let's shoot right back to the beginning, Justin. So start a question for you. Uh, where did it all come from? The love of directing. Uh, I, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to. I said I, I like to make things, and I said to my mum, "What, what, you know, what is a person who makes things?" And she said, "I think that's an engineer." And so I, I got into uh studying it I was going to study engineering and then but I'd always done theater and at the last minute someone came up to me just for it to make our um our choices I'm Australian so in our HSC choices about where we go for university and I said oh I want to do theater but there's no work in it and they said well you know why why not why not do theater and they kept asking me this question over and over and eventually it came down to I picked the wrong course to do so I shifted into theater and I've sort of done it ever since amazing and you've got quite um a string of like different roles people think like they see the director but there's but you've worked as not only just the main guy but assistant director co-director and second unit director across you know the whole industry um what's what, what are the like the key differences between between each role or are they kind of the same uh no they're very different and i look everybody has a different way of delineating them but the way that i always delineated them in terms of theater stuff um an assistant director is it is sort of like uh, it's a role about learning where the emphasis is on is about shadowing and learning mm. um, involved in the creation of the production, but it's, it's mainly based on learning. And then resident director is more about staying on to look after a show. And then associate director is building the show with the director uh, and inherently built into the, to all the ideas that are put together and the design and all that sort of stuff. And then obviously director and then second unit and those sort of, that's, that's a completely different language. That's more in the telly film world where they don't have a language for an associate, a resident, or an assistant director. So an assistant director in telly is very different to an assistant director in uh, theatre, and then second unit director um, or um, additional unit are really about being alongside 
the director and shooting other things that, that are in the film. So it's they're different languages, um, theater and telly, uh, or screen and telly, uh, screen and theater um, that have their own ways of sort of articulating what what people do. Yeah, and um, tell me about your experience on The Crown because that's just exploded as a series. It's become one of the most famous series, I think, in the world, and of course, all of Netflix. What was that experience like? It was bonkers. So Stephen Daldry and I did the audience together, um, and that and with Peter Morgan, and that was the basis for The Crown. So we were always joking during the first lot of rehearsals uh, with Helen that we should be doing this as a film or as a as a series. And then I remember the two of them going over to pitch to, they were pitching to a number of different companies at that stage. And Stephen ringing me and saying, what are you doing for the next two years? Because we're going to be busy. And <laughs> it was it was an amazing experience. I mean, I only worked on the first two series. Um, Stephen and I work in a very, uh, I don't really know how we work together, to be honest. We just we just find our way through and we, we have different skills and different interests and um and uh you know one picks up a ball and runs with it or the next one runs with it when it, when they run out of ideas so it's a very collegiate collaborative process for us um so it was a, it was a really nice time a great cast um an amazing crew of people and the writing i thought was amazing so it, yeah it was a it was a really good two years cutting one's teeth in the television industry yeah i love that he calls you up and says um justin what are you doing for the next two years well, I could be doing no, no, you don't. No, we're going to be very busy. Um, a lot of those credits, actually, which I read out, um, goes back to your working relationship with Stephen Daldry. Um, you know, the Billy Elliot, the audience, Skylight, etc. Um, what, what's it like working with him? What's he like as a director? Uh, well, Stephen's always worked. I mean, he's he ran theatres for quite a period of time, and Stephen's always worked with other directors and enjoys working with other directors, and so. I suppose, I mean, some directors can get very competitive with each other. I, I'm not like that. Uh, and part of that has been the, has come out of and also been the reason that Stephen and I work together. But it, it just, uh, it's very, very collegiate. The brilliant thing in a rehearsal room is, you, you know, you you when you're on your own, you've got to have all the ideas. You've got to have all the responses. When you work with someone else, um, you can go down a, a, a sort of a hole of an idea and see how far it goes. And if you run out of energy, then the other person can pick it up. And so it's a very, um, yeah, passing the baton is a really interesting way because directing can be quite lonely. But with mm. Stephen, in my experience with working with Stephen, which has been both my apprenticeship and also sort of, um, I don't know, a huge part of my working life, it's uh, it's been a joy. Mm. It's been, and it's really good fun. Yeah, fantastic. Um, how can it get lonely uh, being a director? Well, I suppose creatively, the buck stops with you, and yeah, you you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of people looking at you, going, "What are we doing?" and "How are we doing this?" and you know, um, you've got to make a lot of decisions uh, sometimes quite rapidly, and sometimes you know over time, and so uh, sometimes it does feel like you're a little bit of a um, yeah, you're a bit of an island. With an amazing team around you, but when you when there's two of you, um, you know there's a way of sharing that role and you know being able to talk to someone and go, I I actually don't know what to do in this scene. What you know what I do, um, mm. or have you got any ideas for this? And and that I really enjoy it. I really enjoy working with the other, other creatives in general, but working with another director or other directors, I've always found good fun. Yeah, because funny enough, um, I think on Graham Norton this past week, they had Brian Cranston, Bradley Cooper on talking about their directing experiences. And Brian said that he didn't realize to the first day just how like every, the whole crew, everyone's looking at you going, so what So what, So what? what do we do? What, what, what's going to happen? And you're going, 
okay <laughs> what, what, what's going on here like that initial first day like how do you get over that that initial first day with all these eyes just looking at you going justin what where where, where, where do you want me to go what do we do i don't know it's just I, I for me it's always been about being honest about what i know and what i don't know hmm. and um and actually uh, the more that you're you say you don't know the more people assume you do which i always think is really <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you try and surround yourself with a really good team who all have different skills and different points of view and then trying to empower them. Uh, yeah, I mean, Stephen's always taught me, there's two big things Stephen always taught me. The first one was that money will follow the idea. Mm -hmm. And the second is that um, that uh, idea of a relentless pursuit towards the best idea in the room. And it doesn't have to be yours. Mm. My Our main job as directors is to identify what the best idea in the room is. Mm. And, um, and I think uh, when you've got more creatives around you, it just makes it easier because there's more ideas to choose from. Mm. And I think that's interesting because I've spoken to writers and um, choreographers before, and there's always like a, a sense that they call writer's block or creative block, if that makes sense. You know, and is there such a thing as director's block? But I suppose it's easily solvable because you've got all these people around you and, you know, um, you know, everyone to sort of help clean up the mess or something or unblock you. Is that, I mean, is there such a thing as director's block? Yeah, I suppose there is. I mean, I've never talked about it in those terms, but we all have moments where we go, we can't solve something and, you know, we do our best. And sometimes it, it can be someone else's idea that, that unblocks that. Or sometimes, you know, you'll get to a production and you'll watch and you'll go, I never quite solved that section or mm. I'm stuck there. But, I, you know, ultimately for me, a huge part of my job is craft, not, not necessarily the art. So it's about putting great people with different artistic skills together and trying to make clear what they're all trying to say. Mm. So yeah, it, uh, I never thought about it in those terms, but I will now. <laughs> Good. Well, that's an exclusive. You heard it here first. Uh, so we were talking to before we came on about, um, cause you're currently involved with stranger things, uh, in the West end at the moment. And, uh, you're talking about how, you know, things are chopping and changing and, you know, even when you're in the run and you're in, you know, you've done all the rehearsals, the previews and you're in it now yet as a director, you said, you're always looking to still refine things, always to change things. And, you know, when I was a kid, I used to go to the theater and think, oh, like that's the polished version. They don't need to change anything from the moment they go on stage on the first night. It's all just the same, but that I suppose couldn't be further from the truth. It's like, so even when you've got it up on its feet and everything's polished and the audience are in, I, can you turn off, I mean, I suppose you can't really, but can you turn off that director element in your brain? What can we change? What can we improve? Yeah, I can sometimes. I mean, when I'm in the in the mode of the room itself and what and just enjoying the show, yeah. uh, get it off. But I suppose it's always like an audience teaches you so much about what a play is or what a musical is and why wouldn't you learn from them? So, you know, it's interesting as, you're, as I went back and saw the show recently, I hadn't seen it for about a month, and I went back and you suddenly go, oh, it, the audiences, there's a different energy to the audiences in a good way because it's settled down into what it is. And now and now you can really look at it and go, okay, oh, we got that right. We can make that clearer. That's not quite clear. You know, and it's just interesting. It's just interesting. And so it's 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 always a process. I mean, that's what I think previews and, and Stephen, I got this from Stephen, I suppose, in a lot of ways is um, previews are always a process to understand and discover what the play is because the yeah. audience is such a huge part of it and you've got to learn them and the jungle was such an example of that because before we got the audience in we had no idea what the play was because um, <laughs> the audience became such a central part being in that sort of immersive world so it you know uh i just keep you keep learning they keep teaching you about what the play's about and what's not clear to them and when they shuffle and 
when they when you get a good laugh and it's a really sort of middle of the stalls laugh and when you get a sort of not good laugh so mm-hmm. yeah no i'll always think about different ways to make things better or you know um if if i did it again somewhere you know can i can i redo something in some different way or is there things i can do with the cast at the moment but mm-hmm. that, i think it's just ongoing yeah uh, you mentioned the jungle there and of course that that show went to the young started at the young vic then went to the St. Anne's Warehouse in New York, and then went to San Francisco. And of course, that's not the first show that you've done, which has gone from the UK over to America, which you had The Inheritance, and of course, Prima Facie as well, which we'll get onto in a minute. Um, so it's funny enough, I spoke to someone, my last episode I did was someone in New York, and um, she talked about, one question I asked was like the differences between Broadway and UK audiences, you know, how I think in America, they can be a bit more vocal, but she was like, well, I think we're kind of the same. What did you notice between the UK and American audiences with those plays in particular, or indeed in general? I think, I think, well, my experience certainly has been that New York audiences will speak what's on their mind in sometimes in the middle of the show more than UK. (laughs) Um, But that doesn't mean that it's enjoyed any more or any less. Yeah. Uh, but there, it is interesting what people understand. I remember when, when we were talking about Billy in New York, there was a lot of chat around the fact that Billy Elliot's dad, um, you know, calls him a little twat or something. And in the <laughs> UK, they find that hysterical. In the US, they found it very hard to relate to the father. They just thought he was an abusive father. And yeah. and so, I mean, I'm very responsive to audiences. And so, you know, if something's not reading, uh, in the way that I feel is I I'll be very happy to change you know to change and rework things but again it comes from the ideal of I'm learning about the show from an audience um, but yeah they, it's just it's it is different it is different um, not one's not better than the other mm. they're just a thing they t- you know Americans really love emotion and and you know there's an intellect within the I suppose it's where theatre comes from you know in in the case of England. Someone said a long time ago, which I thought was really interesting, that English theatre is is born out of journalism and theatre and education, and American theatre is born out of that whole, you know, what was happening um, with the method and and the bit, you know, so it's about the person and the family, and I think ultimately you want both. Mm. And I think that's um, you mentioned Billy Elliot there, and I think that's one of my favourite shows, and it's just like you mentioned there, the differences between, you know, the. The, the UK sort of culture and, you know, of Newcastle, you know, we, we kind of, we get it in County, County Durham and all that. We understand it's all kind of family, this and how people do that. But, um, but the, the emotion that you got in that show was, it was just unfathomable. I think the, um, the mother song, especially, I, I was lucky enough to see it more than, more than once actually when it was in London at the Palace Theatre. Uh, that scene in particular just, it, it just breaks you in half, the, the mother song, doesn't it? I mean, the reaction you must have got every night must have been pretty spectacular. Yeah, it was beautiful. I mean, Billy is the show. I've seen Billy, I don't know, it must be 1,500 times now. <laughs> and that song still gets me. I mean, it is. it really does make you get in touch with your inner 13-year-old and that notion of loss and um, and of joy and of what you wanted to be when you were younger. And I, it's a really special show. It always has been um, a beautiful, and very special show. Yeah, spectacular. Um, 
I'm always curious about um, your work, particularly on Prima. I've said it wrong again. Prima Facey, as I've said a few times on this, um, sort of the main sort of body of today. Um, it was a show, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's a show about Tessa, who's a young lawyer, uh, dealing with um, sexual assault cases until something comes along and flips her world upside down. And that's all I'll say. Um, but, uh, but if any spoilers do come up, guys, just be warned, this might be the case. Um, so... Yeah, so tell me about Prima Facey. Where did you first hear about this job? So Susie Miller, who was the writer, saw uh, came and saw The Jungle, and she wa- she just wanted to meet to talk about that play. Mm-hmm. And she uh, she and I met um, and talked. Really, I suppose what we shared was a belief that a naive belief that theatre can change the world. And that's um, true. That's true. Well, we hope so. I mean, Susie had <laughs> always been, Susie had been a barrister for a long time and uh, got frustrated by the fact that she felt that the legal system uh, wasn't working in a way that was helpful often to the people that it was supposedly protecting. And so she became a playwright. And this play she'd been thinking about for 20 years, and she talks about it often that she says, you know, when I first wrote it, it was she was she thought no one would come and see it. And I remember she sent it to me. Said, "I've got this little play. Would you mind reading it?" And I and I read it. Um, I, re- I read it sitting. I went on holidays and I was reading it on holidays, and I just burst into tears. And there was something about the profound injustice of it, yeah, uh, and the fact that it wasn't being talked about. Um, I mean, I'm always fascinated with. I, I call them lost tribes, but like you know, that the, the the conversations that aren't happening that should be happening that have both. Um, that are about something that's in conversation with the world, but also have a really personal story at the center of it. Yeah. And she um, she had found a, a way of encapsulating her worldview about the justice system within a play and within a character. And uh, we just decided to do it. And so she talked to James Beerman about producing it. And we had a conversation about that. And then we started talking about actors. And then I remember that the idea of Jodie Comer came up and um, Susie was like, we can't employ her. She's Russian. And I, <laughs> I send her all. The, I sent her a, a stack of clips from um, from interviews with Jodie. And what was really important for me was that it was a working class. I'm, I'm Australian. Um, I was born in a, a a mining town north of Sydney, um, also called Newcastle, uh, and um, brought up in Sydney. And I I was aware that that the working class roots and how she'd fought to where she had to get to mm. was really important. Um, in terms of the story, and so when we met Jody, she just felt like the right the right fit for her. And so her agent read it on a Wednesday, she read it on a Friday, and she'd sort of said, "Yeah, I want to meet on the Monday." So it was a very fast process. But I just knew the right actor would go. I this I want to do this, and I I don't want to see anyone else do it. Yeah, I was a, I'm, I'm a big fan of Jody, not just because of Killing Eve, but um, um, tickets for this thing went like gold dust. So sadly, I wasn't able to see it in the theater. But so via the broadcast, which I think has become the most successful, or taken the most money than any other event, cinema event since NT Live sort of began, you know, and, and that success, you know, has led to a lot of. I remember I was speaking to Danny Arlington, who was Jodie's understudy uh, on this show, and um, she talked about the amount of people that came backstage, well, well they met in the uh, by the stage door, and who shared their stories as well, you know, and that this play. Sort of helped a lot of people to share their own stories and eventually stop, you know, sort of burying it and stuff. What was your experience of audiences' reactions to this thing? 
I mean, overwhelming, and and I and it felt like a huge responsibility. I mean, that 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 very idea that one in three, and giving giving words to the idea that someone can say I'm one in three was a really powerful thing. And yeah. um, I remember on when we did inheritance, the inheritance. I remember that taking that to New York, there was a really emotional response where you feel like there was a whole lot of trauma and grief that had not been dealt with, and the play became a means within which to do that to talk about yeah. the AIDS epidemic. And I and I suppose to some extent, Prima Facie did the same. Is that that injustice which women have been acutely aware of for a long time? Um, there was suddenly an outlet to talk about it that was in the mainstream, and that felt like such a responsibility. And and we got so many letters, and we got so many um, emails, which just were overwhelming in their generosity of sharing their stories. Um, and it was a really humbling thing. Uh, both as a as a theatre maker, but also as a, as a man going, this thing which makes me angry has been making a lot of people angry for a long time and why isn't it changing? And I think that's why the play for me felt so important. Mm. Uh, and also being a male, I, I mean, we we are, uh, are a majority um, the reason that the problem exists. Not, not, I mean, we'll all argue that it's not us specifically, but our people are. And I yeah. think have to find a way to be part of the conversation so it gets better because i don't want to live in a world in which um you know half the population have different rights to me i want to try and live in a world that's fairer than that and also looks after us all because i'm as much a product of my uh, of my mother as i am of my father the patriarchy has done huge damage to me as a human being as it's done to everybody mm. um different degrees and i and i think we um we need to question it and talk about it and to be a part of this play which was trying to find a way to talk about it in a very particular world um, that affects all women um, was deeply, deeply um, humbling mm. and felt like such a responsibility. But yeah, it was it was amazing. And and the response in New York, as in London, was equally uh, as effusive um, and it really brought people together. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that was one of my questions for you. Like the the differences between well, we just mentioned the UK and the US audiences kind of differentials, if any, if 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 they are a little bit smaller. But you know, it sounds like this show got both strong reactions, both from both sides of the pond. You know, people just sharing their experiences. And am I right in thinking in New York, um, Doug Kerr, I think, who created the design of it, who's also been on the show, um, uh, was that the uh, the Jody's, you know, the the two faces of Jody on the uh, on the poster was made up of lots of like people's headshots or pic pictures of people who sent it all in, who had impact, who the show had had that impact, and they wanted to share and literally be a part of it on their big banner in in New York. And uh, I got to show like that. Uh, this show did a, so much, not only just like for you guys to show your incredible craft and everything, but the way you've helped so many people get through what is possibly like one of the hardest things that they could possibly talk about that's happened to them in their lives. Yeah. I think a huge part of the community experience of theater is to say you're not alone. Yeah. And I think that's what Prima Facie did. I remember, I mean, when we did the jungle, I remember at the end, there was a lot of people going, what, okay. So we've seen this thing. It's a huge problem. What, what do we, what do we do? And they wanted answers. And, and the jungle really was a question. And Prima Facie is ultimately is a question. And so what we needed to do is to try and find ways to give access to people different answers. It does, and, and not to say these are the only answers, but one of them was um, to sort of create that community that appeared in that picture, but also um, the school's consent project, which was a huge part of, yeah. uh, is, which is a, is a whole lot of these amazing um, young barristers who are going, 
we you know we defend people in sexual assault cases um and we um and we sometimes know that the system is is helping them in an unfair way how can we educate people about how the legal system relates to consent um and they and so we partnered with them for the show both here and in new york and they've launched in new york and that just felt like a way of going here's one way let's educate everybody including ourselves because you know i was never taught when i was younger about the, the legal framework around consent and where we're all at dan in danger and yeah. uh so it was trying to find answers to questions uh that the play rose about you know something's got to change but how do we change it yeah and um yeah and i think it was a huge movement towards just finding that you like that word you use there consent it it's it's a huge thing and i think more of us need to be sort of a bit more aware of what we can and what we can't do and we hear these stories of people that have been in those situations and this play has helped to be like a locomotive for change in that respect so theater can change people's lives what we were talking about like what we talked about earlier it can change the world particularly in situations like this um i want to just cast your mind back to the very first day of rehearsals am i right in thinking you had just three weeks to rehearse this thing prima facie yeah no we had a little more than that okay more than that. but yeah back to the first day yeah so uh, right, right back to the first day like because all these um credits you know you've like skylight was just uh, three people you've got billy elliott which was a big ensemble of people and um but then suddenly you've just got one person to work with you know it's just it's a one-woman show um what's it like just working with one person on this epic monologue it's a slight it's a slight um it's a slight misunderstanding to think it's one because ultimately you've got this massive team around you. And I had just yeah. got a lot of my mates together. Yeah. So I had um, an amazing stage manager, Georgia Bird, who I'd worked with on a number of shows and she was, you know, in the room and she had her team and I had a design team that I'd worked with in Miriam. And so we were all there and I, it really was a group effort to build. I mean, there's obviously there is an intense conversation at the center of it between Jody and I, which is about the play and Susie being a huge part of that conversation as well. Yeah. Susie was with us for a lot of the rehearsals, but it, but really it felt like a, a massive team effort and, you know, it does take a village uh, to make a show and, and a show like that. I mean, so many people were open in that room. Like, I, I mean, there were different people, whether it be ASMs or, crew coming forward and going this is what I think this is about or this is I understand these lines in this way and and I tried to create a room in which everybody felt like they could talk and we we created a really mixed room so we, we didn't want it to be just women or just men or we wanted it to be mixed um so that the conversation could be vibrant in the room um but it was really it was really exciting and I've had it was the best experience in a rehearsal room I've ever had because it was a very very supportive and loving room um, as it needs to be when you're asking someone to go to the depths of the trauma that particular character has to go through. Yeah. I mean, Josie looked like she took took to her like a duck to water. What's it like working with her? She's a joy. She's a theater animal. And she is, she's, she, she comes across as fearful, fearless, sorry, as fearless she comes across as, but I think she's just really courageous. She does get scared, but she, but her way of dealing with it is going, oh, okay, I've got to do that. And I admire her deeply, but the real thing, I mean, we, there was so much laughter in that room mm -hmm. and we just had a genuinely good time, good time together as a group. And, um, and that was, you know, I mean, I'm sure I haven't heard, listened to Danny's um, interview on this, but I'm sure Danny said the same. It, it became a real family. And particularly there was a, a core group of women who were stage management um, 
and with Jody and Danny became a, a, a sort of total family together and they stayed with the show and looked after it. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I think I remember, I think Danny talked about the real family and community you had um, backstage and everything like you mentioned, it wasn't just you and Jody, obviously, you know, you had a whole team behind you, but uh, I remember Jody at the end of, cause I only saw it via the broadcast was um, she, when she took her bow, she did this and just, and just beckon like the side of everyone backstage, because even though, like you say, it was just a one woman show, but it was a team effort to sort of put this together. And so everyone was supporting her and just sending her good vibes and good energy every single night to make sure she was all right. Um, I just want to ask you quickly, um, there was, I spoke with Danny about, cause Danny did one show in, in New York. Um, cause Jody, I think got, was it a couple of minutes into a show and then couldn't, couldn't carry on. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, there were, there were crazy fires going on and, and New York was like, I mean, if you've seen the pictures, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Full of smog. And to go out there and to do like, I mean, we built a very, very physical show. And part of the thing about a one person show is it's sort of a circus show. So, you know, because it's and the question we get asked the most is, you know, how did she learn all those lines? Which, of course, is is just the, that's the part of being an actor. That's what yeah. you have. To do. But yeah. um, but to go out there and to be as physical as she did um when you could barely see in front of you um she and you know and and also she's she's doing eight shows a week so she was you know it's not it's not um it's a it's an exhausting thing to do and um the amazing thing about Jodie is because she hadn't done a lot of theater before she gives you 150 percent like there's no I'm gonna have a quiet matinee it's like you're getting everything every time she goes out there and so that day, uh, you know, she got up there and the smoke and she just got overwhelmed by it. And I mean, that's why we have understudies. And I remember her coming off and she was she was so sort of upset about the fact that she'd let everybody down. And we just all spoke to her and went, no, this is this yeah. is what it is. And she the most there's a lovely picture of her and Georgia and the team watching Danny do it and being really supportive of Danny. And it was a really um, joyful thing. And then Jody went on that night Um and did the show in the evening it was just in the day where it got particularly bad but she's she's such a trooper and she was such a supporter of danny and danny was such a supporter of her and they held each other through that whole process and you know it's a testament to the team that you know in that moment they were able to rally and do the show and you know it's interesting i mean some people will go oh, you know i came to see jody and i didn't see it but for me uh, you know, Jodie's a huge part of that, but the show stands on its own and Danny did the show and the people who saw it, loved it and thought she was brilliant because she is. Yeah, of course. Um, who is Tessa to you? Who do you, who is she? Uh, I mean, T Tessa is an ideologue who believes she's a, she's a, <laughs> she's a, She's a religious um, believer and her religion is the law and she's mm. so passionate about it. Um, she's all of us in some ways because I think on some level we all believe that the law is built to protect us. Mm. And when you discover that the law is not there to protect you or that it's deliberately built to favour some people over you, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's both a tragic but it makes you really angry. And so, I, I, you know, it... I don't know. I mean, Tessa is everybody to me. Tessa is me, but she's also, you know, all the phenomenal women that I know and have worked with in my career. And um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, anybody who believes in something and comes to really understand that it's, you know, it, it's some of it is a lie, I suppose. But mm -hmm. I think she's so, I mean, what Susie wrote was wrote in that character, which Jodie so brilliantly personified 
was somebody that you could admire and look up to and then yet had the had the sort of for um yeah went through this amazing revelation in her life mm. i think um yeah also you mentioned earlier like um about all the activities that tessa has to do on stage you know i think there's times where she gets dressed and undressed and then there's a big table and then she has to be like in a in a dance routine or something when she's in the club and everything because I, I can I say I said this to Danny actually as well I really liked the uh the bit where she goes the first day of law school and she goes oh what's your name Benedict of course his name's Benedict you know I was like, yeah that really I was like yeah that sounds sounds like a law school name but yeah. uh what was it about um because this kind of ties into another question really because with a one person show you know you've literally got one person to keep an audience's attention for you know 80 90 minutes um what was it about creating all these um like stations if you will like all these things for her to do was that to sort of ground her or was that to like sort of give the show like a bit more kind of energy or like things things to do so she's not just standing and talking to the audience if that makes sense yeah i think i think um Obviously, we 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 had jo Jody agreed to do the show, and we were, we'd started talking about theaters, and it, it had been done before, in a in a very small production. And there's a very small production of that that of that play, which is brilliant. Um, mm -hmm. A friend of mine, Sheridan Harbringer, had done in Australia, and I went. Obviously, we we need to be in a bigger theater because we want the most amount of people to see it that yeah. possible, and so we needed to create a world in which there was some scale. Um, Miriam. The designer and I were trying to figure out what's the playground within which a barrister exists. And we spent a lot of time going to court and being at the Old Bailey and just watching court cases and going to chambers and experiencing that. And one of the things we came across really early, we knew that we wanted it to rain in the middle of the, of the show. And that was a sort of important early design element around which other things were. And then the folders became something because yeah. the folders everywhere we went. So they were sort of the two things we started with. Um, the sort of energy of moving the show around really was to go, okay, we need to, we need to give a sense of a world of, of all these different sets. Um, but we wanted to keep her in control of them so that she had agency to go, I'm going to go to this place and I'm going to change it rather than the set doing it for her. <laughs> so that the first half really was a, was a set in which she was in control of. And the second half was a set in which she wasn't in control of where things could happen, like the rain, all mm -hmm. coming back in. Um, and they were sort of the, the signposts that we used to kind of design the show um and so i mean i love the energy and the acrobatics of of it of her moving around that space and she's moving the tables and she's controlling and she's on them and then she's off them and it it felt like an uh, it gave it real energy but in truth when you watch the show she is down the stage center for 85 percent of the show mm. so it's it's the illusion of uh scale more than it is the reality and that's the that's the nature of those west end theaters is the craft of them is that you've got to be downstage center to do something important. Mm -hmm. And if you're upstage left or right, then you sort of disappear. And so the show was designed with the, with the, I suppose, yeah, the, the logistics of one of those big theaters in mind. Um, but we, I, it was such a good, good fun to sort of create. And Jody was so game. I remember ringing her up and saying, so I'm going to, I'm going to wet you. <laughs> so how do you feel about that and she she sort of looked at me and she was on holiday somewhere and she went okay all right all right 
And then, you know, when the first day we turned the water on, it was freezing cold. They heated it eventually, but Ouch. it was. It was <laughs> but we used to rehearse like that whole section. We used to rehearse under the rain because we, you know, Susie has this great provocation in the middle of the play, which is that a pause happens. And she'd always said to me, that's the one thing I it, it, we can't change. You need a moment for the audience to have a response to what happens at the end of the first half. But I don't want it to be an interval because it'll let them off the hook. Yeah. And really, they'd done it with a, uh, a, the actress went off stage, changed the jacket. And there was something for me about the rain and the tears and then those numbers that in terms of the amount of people, uh, the amount of time it takes for a, a case to come um, that felt like it had a sort of power to it and didn't let us off the hook, but at the same time gave us a, bre a breath before we got into the second half. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's interesting in the play because what she obviously gets soaked and then backstage there was this amazing pit crew who are, you know, <laughs> driving her and changing her so she can get back on as fast as possible and keep going. But it did mean she was wet for the second half of the show. And I remember talking to her about that and she was like, she's just so courageous. And she was like, yeah, bring it on. <laughs> and it, it helped her in the moments of the second half of the show because there is a sort of patheticness to when you're wet and you're feeling like everything's lost. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. Could imagine if she said no. <laughs> that would have been a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> we all had another idea, but yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's such a beautiful moment. I mean, and you know, it's it's a very simple show. It's the it's the little show that could, and it's got these couple of big moments which is the rain and then obviously what happens at the end mm. but in terms of it it's just a woman pushing around furniture you know and standing on things and it's not it's not particularly complicated yeah that's the synopsis woman pushes furniture around <laughs> come and see this show <laughs> I know, I know. it's funny isn't it and you know and and really then the folders then really led to what that final image was and then yeah. we so Rebecca Lucy Taylor, who is such a freaking rock star. Oh, uh, self-esteem, yeah. Self-esteem, mm. who you know, is a working-class woman um, and really understands drama and theatricality in, in the, the music that she makes. Yeah, uh, I remember James, I mean, and I should say James is a huge part of this whole experience as well. James had sort of suggested her and I met her and, and listened to a lot of music and we just went, this, is the, this feels like the right energy for it. But she wrote that last piece and she brought it in and I knew that we wanted the folders to do what they do at the end. And she um, she just wrote that extraordinary piece of music that then sort of all came together with the final image. So it was it was um, it was a beautiful group of people to work with. Mm. It was um, it was as some critics said, it was the theater event of that year of 2022. And um, uh I just want to say, um, just yeah, just thank you for that show, Justin. It was just a, a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant piece. And um, it's something I saw that luckily enough, it was broadcast more than once and I saw it twice. Uh, it was just a really fantastic, insightful, and I think not only because of the story and everything that's happened as a result, and now more and more people feel like you've given people that confidence to come out and tell their story about something that they otherwise, up until Prima Face, wouldn't have been able to talk about. But also just from an acting and because, uh, you know, being an actor myself, you know, look, watching Jodie, watching her choices, thinking at uh, one part of my brain, I'm going, how is she learning all those fucking lines? But then another part of it, I'm like, OK, yeah, I know that's just step one. And then once you get into the room, then you can start playing and exploring and everything. Um, and yeah, and just everything about it was just fantastic. So congratulations to you, sir, for, for that and that project. Um, so just out of curiosity, when you work with actors, um, would you like them to come to 
uh, like rehearsals, like day one, do you want them to have all the lines in their head? Or are you kind of like a bit lenient? It's like give them a couple of weeks if they're not fully there yet. But then obviously once you get into the middle of it, then you want them to be off book. But would you prefer them to have them off off book on day one? It's really whatever works for the actor. I mean, I uh, I like to get a run of the show early, so I'm not I'm not a great one. And I, like Stephen and I, are sort of I got this really from Stephen, I suppose. Is I'm not a great one of sitting around at the table and talking around about it for hours and hours. Um, I like to get up on its feet and uh, I suppose take a bite of the apple and see what we've all got, and then if we need to, then sit down and talk about it more than this scene or that scene. Do it. But so I normally try and get a run as fast as I can. And so if 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 an actor can can get to that um during the rehearsal process and that's great but if they feel they need to do it before then that's great too it's it's really up to that it's really about what gets the 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 folder or the script out of the way of the actor so they can just play Mm. Um, but it was you know i think we ran the play at the end of the second week of rehearsals and then then the third week we took it apart again ran ran act one at the end of the first week that's right i remember saying to jd we're going to do that and she was like what (laughs) <laughs> no, it's it's just about getting it up and and having a, a go at it and looking at what we had and then i remember i redid a couple of scenes in act in the third week which i hadn't I hadn't cracked we hadn't quite cracked them and then the fourth week was just running it so it, it, yeah i mean you learn so much from running it and doing it and then talking about it and then running and doing it and um you really get them into a get yeah you get to a stage where you're really confident i'm I, but there are other directors who go you know, don't run it until the night before you go into tech. And I, that's not that's not how I work. I, I feel like I want everyone to be much more comfortable than that. Yeah. You want everyone to have like a sense of what happens at each point in the journey, like before, like early on. So then when it gets to the later stages, then they can just go into it like fluidly and see so like, okay, so where do you need to be in Act 3 when I'm there? It's like, okay, where are you in Act 4? I'm over there sort of thing. So everyone's like got, got an awareness of where they are at any one point in the show, right? Yeah, but also means you can, yes, I think that's right. It, it also yeah. means you can rewrite, like, so, you know, Stranger Things, we were rewriting all the time during previews, like whole mm-hmm. scenes and whole sections. And and uh, Prima Facie, we did a little bit of rewriting, but not, not. I mean, ma- and most of the rewriting was towards shifting the show towards Jodie and building it on Jodie so that it felt, you know, it was set, uh, she was from Liverpool and all that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, it, yeah, it's just giving the space for all of us to feel confident and then and then we can change things you know yeah exactly fantastic i i know we're slightly pushed for time today because i know you've got to do other things um in, in a second i've just got a few more questions for you for you justin um Go for it. so one thing i was thinking about you mentioned there about um like you know, sometimes you get stuck like some scenes or things can get a bit uh, more of a challenge than others. You know, sometimes you might have to rewrite or reblock or whatever it is that, that you do. Um, what's the best way of approaching scenes, which at first you can get, you're not too sure of or find it tricky at first. What's the best way of, of cracking them, do you think? I don't know. I mean, for, for me, it's always, when I approach a scene, I normally am trying to find the idea or the, what's the... Um, I call it the idea, but it's like, what's the play within the the scene? And if I can find that, then I know how to stage it. If I can't, then it gets a bit tricky. And I'll and then I'll have a go. You know, I'll have a go, but you can feel you feel it failing as you're doing it. Um, <laughs> it's just a lot of talk with the writer. I mean, I'm very light writer driven in terms of the way that I work, trying to understand what they're trying to do, and then how can I support that, or what seems to be of interest within the context of a scene, like whether. Yeah, I suppose where the point of focus, where the where the idea is within it, uh, 
I don't know. Yeah, you, it's a good question. We you do get stuck in places, I, and I, and I suppose the thing is not. Sometimes you have to push through that stuck, and sometimes you just have to leave it and come back to it. Mm. Yeah, um, very. You know, just go have a cup of tea and just let your brain sort of like break it apart, if that makes sense. You know, and then you come back like, what do we do this way? Ah, oh, there we go. Then you find the way through. Um, so just a couple more things for you, mate. Um, so this is a new question I've sort of adopted over the last few episodes uh, towards the end, which is uh, what would you say was a piece of advice that you wish you'd heard at the beginning of your journey? Uh, oh, there's so many. But I think... I I, there's something that happens as you get older people start trusting that you know what you're talking about like it's just something you 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 exude like you've got knowledge which is absolute crap you know i mean you, you know less when you get older mm. but i think that the courage i mean people say this is a bit of a stereotype but the courage to say i don't know and to be okay to sit in that and know that collectively we'll you know we will find a way forward um because once you feel you've got the courage, to, you know, if I could encourage myself to be more courageous in that and then to know that the people around me will help me and they won't judge me for not knowing. Um, mm. But actually taking people on a journey together is a much more interesting way within the context of building something. So I'd probably say that to myself. Um, yeah. And and the other big thing as a director, we spend most of our lives pitching and you've got and they do not teach it to us. And we need, we need to, like, pitching is our thing. We do, we're do we doing it all the time. I've got yeah. an idea for whether I'm pitching an idea to an actor in a room or I'm pitching an idea of a play to an artistic director or to a producer or, you know, to a writer. It's all, We're all pitching, and that, that need, you need to be really good at that and get mm. better at it. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you more about that, but time will permit me from not from doing that. Um, just before the last question, uh, thank you again for your time today, Justin. I really appreciate it. Um, let's do this again. I'd love to have you back on. I've still got so many more questions I'd love to ask you about Prima Facie and, of course, just the, the rehearsal room in general, the various elements that go into it and casting and what you were just talking about there as well. So, But we'll have to, do, have to get a part two in as well to talk more about that. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Um, so just one final question for you, which is for every guest. Um, what's been an experience or experiences you've had in your career up to this point that you're never, ever going to forget? I suppose there's two. I remember uh, the first time I put a Billy on. So I joined Billy uh, about six months before it was going to Australia. So I, I learned the show in England and then I took it to Oz. Mm -hmm. And the first Billy I put up, and realize it because it took on my own and and we all with not my own with a team <laughs> uh, and watching the power of that show and that kid in that show um i'll never forget because you know the those kids were extraordinary but you were basically teaching them to act sing, dance within such a short amount of time mm. uh, and with some skills but you always had to sort of upskill and so the, I, i'll never forget that day and then the other one was the first preview of Prima Facie where st actually Stephen was at that preview. I said, come and come and see the show and give me notes. And <laughs> he sat, I put him in the middle of the stalls and he was surrounded by men and women, but predominantly women who at the last queue, at the beginning of the last queue, they already knew what was happening and they rose to their feet with this roar that I've never heard in theatre before. And you just went, "That's that energy is what could change the world. And it was so exciting and moving. And I just sat there and cried. And we, I ran backstage and, you know, just, they were all crying backstage. It was one of those just things where you're going, the, the power of the play and the power of the combination of what we put together um, was something I'd never experienced. And I saw Stephen after it and he said, uh, he said, I've, I've got no notes for you. You're, it's going to be a hit. Wow. And I, 
I was like, it was a really, yeah, it was, it was just one of those nights I'll never forget. Fantastic. Right. There you have it. Fantastic. Justin, mm -hmm. thank, thank you so much for your time today, man. Uh, like I said, I'd love to have you back. Let's do this again. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, mate. Um, cool. If you just hang on, I'll finish the recording. I'll say goodbye to you one-to-one -one in a second, but guys, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. This has been the Answers Critic Podcast, and I'll be back very, very soon. And once again, Justin Martin, thank you so, so much. Yeah.